And so we do come now to the proclamation of God's word as we are continuing to walk through the gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. And it's a longer portion this week, so I wasn't able to fit it into the bulletin. But if you have a Bible, um, or I'm sure most of us have a Bible app, feel free to please follow along as God's word is read. Again, uh, Matthew 23, verses 13 through 36. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets." Thus you witness against yourselves, and you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary 
and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would give us again those eyes to see the face of Christ, that you would give us understanding As we study your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus certainly is a gentle lamb, but he is also a roaring lion. And as we have navigated through Matthew's gospel, we've seen both those aspects of Christ's character become very clear to us. And so as we read these words in Matthew 23, we read them... And we feel the weight of them. It is a text that that causes us to grow weak in the knees and our hearts to tremble. We hear the voice of Jesus roaring like a lion. And He launches into this prophetic discourse that rolls down from heaven like thunder and His words strike upon us like great bolts of lightning on our hearts. Our ears are deafened by the sound of them. It is a hard text to read. Six times Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Five times He calls them blind leaders. He uses terms like child of hell. He, He makes accusations that would have been especially offensive to these scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, who are boasted of their ceremonial cleanness because he accuses them of being unclean, calling them full of dead men's bones, snakes and vipers, unclean animals. Uh, He calls them fools and murderers, full of violence and greed. This is certainly a difficult text. It's certainly one that as pastors we have a hard time uh, preaching. Nevertheless, it is the Word of God and it is God's Word to us. And so all of these stinging words of that come down to us are for us to hear. Jesus uses this prophetic device in this narrative called the woe. We see that seven times. And in the prophecies of the Bible, in the prophetic language of the Bible, two things occur. And you can see this, especially in the Old Testament prophets, but even prophecy in the New Testament as well. And that is there is either blessing or there is cursing. There is either judgment pronounced or mercy announced. And this woe is a particularly strong pronouncement of God's judgment, His holy justice. We see it employed by prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, among others. A woe is is like a piano chord and it it strikes different notes communicating grief and anger and sorrow. It speaks of intense distress and hardship and disaster. And to call forth a woe is to call down the heaviest of God's judgment 
from heaven to fall upon those who have acted unjustly, who have rebelled against God and in their sin broken His law. And so here in Matthew 23, Jesus the King, as we have seen Him as the King of all kings, He is now wielding His scepter in judgment. The public courts of the temple where this discourse has been taking place is now transformed into a courtroom. And Jesus will build a case. He will bring in indictments. He will present the evidence. He will prove the motive. And he will declare the verdict upon the Pharisees and the scribes. And as the king makes his case, he does that through these seven woes. And each one adds a new layer, a new level on this case that he builds. The first two woes are the indictments. This is what the Pharisees have done. This is what they are accused of, the wrong that they have done. And the indictment's pretty clear. He says to them, Woe to you, for you have kept people from entering the kingdom of heaven. That's the charge. That's the indictment. And that is to say that they, they kept people from knowing the blessing of God. They kept people from His grace. They prevented them from enjoying His presence, which He had promised through His covenant of grace. Jesus says in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I mean, it isn't enough that the Pharisees themselves refuse to enter into the blessed rest of God's kingdom, but they want to shut that door in the face of others, turning people away, discouraging them from knowing God. The kingdom of heaven, of course, is a term that speaks of God's ultimate salvation. It's the fulfillment of all His covenant promises in the promised Christ, in Jesus. And as we have witnessed all through the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees have tried their best to keep people from Christ, from enjoying the promises that He brings. I mean, they've tried to expose Him time and time again as a false teacher. They plot and they plan and they they lay clever traps to try to make Him appear as a fraud. And finally, as we are seeing, they are planning to have Him arrested and put to death. And why do they do all of that? They do that, of course, because they have rejected Jesus as the anointed Savior sent by God to deliver His people from their sins. But not only are they slamming the door of the kingdom shut in the face of others, in the face of those that they should have been leading into the kingdom, pointing people to the Christ. But as they slam that door shut, they also pull open a trap door into hell itself so that people would fall further into condemnation. And Jesus says in the second woe, as we see here, that the Pharisees will travel across sea and land. They will go far abroad just to make one proselyte. Now a proselyte is a convert 
to the brand of Judaism that the Pharisees preached. It was the self-righteous, prideful religion that we've seen come up again and again in the Gospel of Matthew and where they twist the holy law of God and add to it human commandment upon human commandment so as to burden the people. It was idolatry. It was worshiping the power of humanity, the pride of self-righteousness rather than the power of God to deliver. And now, the Gentiles, these proselytes that the uh, Pharisees would go to and the scribes would go to, they already followed a different gospel. Most of them walked in some form of paganism. They were already idolaters. However, the Pharisees and the scribes, as, as the teachers of God's law, they should have been pointing these people to the truth, to the true worship of God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. In fact, in Exodus 19.6, God tells his people that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, thus pointing all the other nations of the earth to the Lord. But since the Gentiles... Uh, were already idolatrous, the Pharisees, by leading them further astray into this false gospel that they had built, were making them, as Jesus said, twice the child of hell. They were reaping more condemnation onto them. They were leading them from untruth into further untruth, further away from God, closer to their own destruction. And so the indictment is very clear The Pharisees have slammed shut the door of the kingdom and thrown open the trap door to hell. And now Jesus will support that indictment with further woes, pointing to the evidence to prove his charge. And we see that in verses 16 through 24. Here is where Christ calls them multiple times blind guides, blind leaders. Blindness being, of course, a metaphor in the Scriptures uh, for a lack of understanding, of perceiving, of seeing. And four times in these verses, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind because they lack the spiritual insight to see the truth of God. This blindness was evidenced by the fact that when it came to the law of God, they did this. They majored on the minors. And they did that in two different ways. First, uh, they focused on the gold of the temple rather than the greatness of God. They looked for loopholes in the law by pointing people, uh, pointing out how they could do the least amount of effort to worship the Lord rather than embracing all of God's justice and mercy and faithfulness. So, again, these two particular practices that Jesus brings up point to this fact that they are majoring on the minors. The first is this, that they they swore oaths in the temple and on the altars of the temple, but they did so in the most insincere manner possible. To swear by something was to make a solemn promise and affirm the truth of what you were promising by calling on divine sanctions to be executive if one fails to keep that promise. And so there's a sense here 
uh, where the swearing on of something is a sort of expression of faith. If someone were to go in the temple and say, hey, I swear by the temple or I swear by the gold of the temple, they're saying there is a God who is almighty and holy and he is the judge of all the earth. And if I fail to do this thing, I am promising you may his judgment fall upon me. So there's like this idea of acknowledging faith there behind this oath. But for the Pharisees, it is a very dishonest faith. You see, the temple and its altars were signs and symbols of God's presence and His provision of redemption. The temple was the house of the Lord. God's presence dwelt there. And so to make an oath upon the temple was, in a sense, making an oath, a solemn promise to God Himself. To break that oath would be a grave sin indeed. But to get around this, the Pharisees said, well, hey, you can just swear on the gold of the temple instead of the temple itself. And that may have been the artifacts in the temple. It may have been uh, the gold that was used to decorate the temple. It may have been the treasury of the temple. Whatever it was, though, they were saying, hey, you're not actually swearing on the temple, just the gold of the temple. So you're really not invoking God's name. You're really not swearing and promising this, making this oath before Him. So if you break this oath, you'll be fine. God won't judge you. It was easy to be dishonest. Vows were cheap, and so was their faith. And if one is looking for ways to avoid the truth of God's holy presence, it means that they don't really want to truly worship Him. And this became evident even in the way they handled the sacrifices at the altar. One could swear by the altar and not their sacrifice, and thus they were uh, not making their oath or confession directly to God. It was just the altar. They were free to break their promise. And if they were making a sacrifice to atone for sin, hey, you can go ahead and sin again. There's no sincerity in their faith or their repentance. And so Jesus calls them out. He asks them rhetorically, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? The altar or the gift that makes the altar sacred? And the idea he's getting at here is holiness. Holiness is to be set apart, distinguished, anointed as unique. And when we speak of the holiness of God, we're saying that He is holy other, set apart above us and everything that is. Now, the temple and its gold were only holy because there is where the presence of God dwelt. It was holy because God was there. And the the sacrifice of the altar... Uh, was sacred because the altar was needed to offer up the sacrifice in the first place. Uh, Hebrews 9.22 tells us that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. You could not separate God from the temple. You cannot have proper worship without the altar. You cannot escape the presence of God. And your dishonest promise of faith is still against the God of heaven who sees all. The second way the Pharisees majored on the minors was in this area of tithing. 
We read in Leviticus 27.30 and Deuteronomy 14.22 that God instructs his people to give a tenth of their produce to care for the priests and the temple in which they ministered. The tithes were essential to maintain the priesthood so that the people could continue to meet with God in worship at that time in that administration of God's covenant of grace so that atonement could be made for their sin through the many sacrifices of that time. And it is not the act of tithing of mint, cumin, dill that Jesus is condemning here, but the fact that the Pharisees would only focus on the external act of giving, but ignore the true weight of the law, which focused upon justice and mercy and faithfulness. In fact, Jesus uses a rather humorous illustration to try to explain this and condemn them. He says in verse 24 that they strain at a gnat and they end up swallowing a camel. Like we use that phrase regularly in English as as an idiom. A gnat was considered the smallest animal in Palestine and a camel was considered the largest Under the Jewish law, both were unclean animals. To touch them without ceremonial cleansing would result in defilement. Now, gnats uh, would commonly land in the vats of wine that people would regularly drink. And so if they wanted to drink their wine, they had to strain it first to get all the gnats out. I don't blame them. I get that. But Jesus says, look, you are, you are straining the gnat out, but you haven't even removed the camel. The larger unclean animal is still entering into you. He's saying by practicing tithing, you're straining the gnats. Yeah, that's good. But you're ignoring the heart of the law. And you're swallowing the larger unclean animal, defiling yourself in an even greater way. And what is the heart of the law? Well, Jesus says here it is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That is a summary, or it is very reminiscent of Micah 6, 8, where God asks his people through the prophet Micah, what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before God. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's a summary of the entirety of God's law. It's another way of saying what we saw several chapters ago, a few weeks ago, uh, when Jesus summarized the law by saying the law is to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Justice and mercy have to do with loving your neighbor, seeking what is true and showing compassion to them. Faithfulness is loving God with your whole being. And so this tithe in question was to be a demonstration of both those aspects of God's law. It was just and merciful because what? It cared for the priests who were leading the people in worship so that they could enjoy the blessing of His covenant presence with them. And it was an expression of faithfulness because it supported the priesthood. And by supporting them, uh, they were supporting the means by which God could speak His grace and truth into their lives and meet with them. But the Pharisees missed it entirely. They focused on the major instead of the minor. 
And so we have the evidence then that supports the indictment. And now Jesus will move in, in verse 25, and prove the motive. What did the Pharisees do? What's the indictment? They kept people from entering the kingdom. How did they do it? What's the evidence? They majored on the minors and missed the true meaning of God's law. And now what's the motive? Why did they do what they do? They did it because their hearts were unclean. They were unregenerate. They were still spiritually dead. Jesus points this truth out with, again, dramatic language. He, he speaks of ritual washings that the Pharisees would do to clean a cup or a plate, but inwardly they were still full of greed and self-indulgence. They wanted to impress others with their external purity, but inwardly they were still in, impure. You see, outward purity without a purified heart is a fictitious faith. And so Jesus takes this point even further than just dishes. He says that you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inwardly you hold death and decay and filth. Tombs, according to Jewish law, were particularly unclean, and anyone who touched them was in need of days upon days of ritual, ceremonial cleansing to be considered clean again. And when they were unclean, they would not be permitted to enter into the temple, into even the courts of the temple to worship God. And so, especially during the Passover, the tombs around Jerusalem were painted white. They were whitewashed. That was to be a warning. It was to say, hey, don't touch these if you want to worship. They're dangerous. They are unclean. And this Pharisaical religion looked white and pure on the outside. It looked beautiful, but inwardly it reeks of spiritual death. It appeared to be righteous, But inwardly it is dead inside. And from that spiritual deadness, that unclean heart, the Pharisees slam shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in the face of others. So the case has been made. The evidence was clear. They had majored on the minors. They had ignored the weightier matter of God's law to justify themselves, to proclaim their own outward holiness when inwardly they were actually unclean. And from that unclean heart comes the motive to keep others from Christ. And so we come then to the final woe, the seventh woe, which is the verdict. They are guilty as charged, guilty of rejecting Christ. And closing the door of his kingdom. And it is the seventh woe that is perhaps the most severe. Jesus says in verses 29 and 30, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. See, throughout Israel's history... God had sent many a prophet to proclaim to His people His will and to call them to repentance, turning from their idols that they were often so eager to follow. And But Israel's history was a bloody one. 
For prophet after prophet after prophet was killed by the people in order to try to silence the voice of God crying out to them, calling them back to himself. It was a further act of defiance, rebellion against him. In rejecting the prophets, they were rejecting his revelation, his truth. And in rejecting his revelation, they are rejecting God himself. And now the Pharisees believed that they were better than that. They're better than their predecessors, the generations that have gone before. I mean, current generations, we kind of joke about it, but current generation often believe they actually are more enlightened and moral than those who went before them. That they are somehow above them. That they have really come to understand the truth. They are better. The Pharisees and the disciples would say, look, we venerate the the, the prophets and the righteous. We decorate their tombs. We would never kill them like those in the past. But Jesus says, as you do that, as you venerate the prophets, they are bearing witness against you. The very bones of the prophets in those tombs cry out to you in condemnation. For the Pharisees had rejected God's messengers of their generation. They were no different than the ones who went before, who in murderous rage killed those who proclaimed the truth. Uh, This current generation had rejected God's revelation in the person of Christ. And thus they rejected God himself. And the rejection of Christ and his revelation is not complete, says Jesus. No, he will send them other messengers and they will kill them and crucify them and, and, and flog and persecute them from town to town. And he's speaking, of course, the blood of John who was already beheaded and the, the blood of Christ who would be crucified. He's also speaking of, of the future blood of, of Peter and Paul and every saint who faithfully followed in the sufferings of Christ. All of that blood of the slain prophets, the slain servants of God, from Abel who was the first, to Zechariah who was the last recorded in the Old Testament, onward, all of them cry out against the Pharisees. All that blood of rejection was on their hands. And it's echoing down through the quarters of history saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. No amount of ritual cleansing, of whitewashing of tombs is going to erase that stain. Greed and lawlessness and hypocrisy and self-indulgence and violence and pride, they bleed through these carefully painted exteriors of self-righteousness. Outward displays of righteousness cannot hide the unrighteousness of the heart. And that's what makes Jesus' prophetic discourse here so terrifying. Because as we hear... Woe after woe after woe leveled against the Pharisees. You cannot help but sometimes feel that we are being spoken to and see ourselves in their place. The natural desire of every human heart is to whitewash our lives, to hide the fact that we are indeed, apart from the work of God giving us new life, we are dead inside spiritually. 
Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And that is a question that many a person has asked themselves, even the most devout of Christian wonders at times in their lives, am I really God's child? Am I truly an object of His mercy? Or am I just a Pharisee? How shall I escape being sentenced to hell? Nobody wants to fall under the judgment of God. Even those who deny Him, if they would admit that He exists, would say, yeah, we don't want to face the judgment of God Almighty if He is real. An eternal verdict of guilt and condemnation is not a sentence anyone wants. And yet all the suffering and the pain of this world preaches to us that we indeed live in a fallen world, a world that is cursed. Every temporary judgment of God points to the final judgment and the reality that He is holy and He requires justice. All that blood that is on our hands must be answered. We read in verse 36, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, and speaking specifically to the Pharisees and the people of Jerusalem, All these things will come upon this generation. This is again a reference to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. By destroying the temple, God was effectively removing the symbol of His presence with the people. It was much like casting Adam and Eve out of the garden. Removing them from His presence. And so you get this idea of this cursing, of this pushing them away from Him. The separation that occurs because of sin. But even this judgment of the temple that Jesus speaks of points forward to that more sobering final judgment. As He mentions hell, the place of ultimate separation from God. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that when Christ Jesus returns in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, because they've rejected Him, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, sounds familiar to the Pharisees, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away So separation from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So this final woe, with this final woe, the scepter of Jesus' judgment comes down in justice and truth, ringing out its solemn verdict. The righteousness of the Pharisees is no righteousness at all. And if anyone is to escape the holy judgment of God, they need a better righteousness. They need the righteousness of Christ Himself. And thanks be to God, that is what He gives us by His grace. You see, Jesus is not a cold-hearted judge. He takes no joy in declaring punishment to fall upon the Pharisees and the people of Jerusalem. And our text ends with Jesus' great lament over the city of Jerusalem. And in that heart of sorrow, we see the heart of a Savior. Through the entirety of Matthew 23, we've heard the lion's roar of judgment. But coming now into this lament, we see the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus. He weeps over the destruction of those who would destroy Him upon the cross. He He sheds tears that reveal the salvation He can bring and wishes to bring. 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so again, there is this theme of guilt that is running through Jesus' words. In fact, he, he extends the blood that stained the hands of the Pharisees now to include the entire city of Jerusalem who had stoned the prophets. And the punishment that he speaks of here is the removal, again, of God's presence. It, it's a twist of irony, rather. Jesus speaks of the temple as being your house. Your house. Earlier in chapter 21, he called it God's house. You see, the glory of God had already departed. And it is that reality that causes Jesus to sorrow. His judgment gives him no pleasure. He longs to comfort and nurture the people, but they would not have him. So from the image of this roaring lion, we are presented with the contrast of a mother bird sheltering her flock beneath her wings while the storm blows around them. And you get the idea then of protection. Jesus wishes to protect those who would come to Him so that the woes would not fall upon them from heaven. And again, those old dichotomies become very clear. Mercy and justice, wrath and gentleness, chaos and calm, destruction and salvation. For while the judgment of God must surely come, He must answer the blood that has been shed, there is actual hope to escape that judgment. There is mercy that is here. Jesus says that He would not be seen again. You would not enjoy the presence of God until you are willing to say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That is an expression of faith. That is repentance. That is bowing down to Christ the King. And of course, He is he's speaking particularly of His second advent and the salvation that it will come finally at that moment to all those who have bowed to Him as Lord. See, the woes of judgment must fall The blood that was shed demands justice. The stain of sin upon every human heart, including yours and mine, it cannot be ignored, for God is holy. But when we say, in simple faith, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, when we come to Him in that faith, turning from our sin and sorrow, He, like a gentle bird, gathers us under His arms, shelters us, so that when the woes of God's judgment do rain down, they do not fall upon us, for they have already fallen upon His outstretched wings. That is what Christ did on the cross. He stretched forth His arms so that we underneath them might not suffer the judgment we deserve. They have fallen upon Him who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Because of that, 
The judgment of the Pharisees is not your judgment if you are in Christ. You're already safe under his wings. The judgment upon Jerusalem is not your judgment for Christ has already borne it for you if you have called him the blessed king of your life. For in Jesus there is now no condemnation to those who rest in him. Father in heaven, we're thankful for our Savior who shelters us. We're thankful that we can come and rest without fear of the roaring lion, the roaring judgment that is to come. We can rest knowing that we are not condemned for He suffered our condemnation for us. I pray that You would continue to remind us of these things and that we would go forth into this world as Your servants proclaiming them to a city that is in danger, calling them to the blessed King to come and gather under His arms by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.